welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast, the podcast for professionals just like you. This is episode number 42. Thanks for joining me today. I am excited to have Marjorie Wall, your association president-elect, speaking with us today. We are taking some time to really get to know Marjorie, and then she's going to share some thoughts on missing instruments. So it's a great show. And I'm really excited to have you join us today. Now, if you haven't heard by now, let me go ahead and catch you up. The member elected board of directors, those folks that you elected in line with the association's strategic plan have proposed an organizational name change. Now, the proposed name change is from ISHM to Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA. Okay, so here's the deal. ISHM has partnered with Survey and Ballot Systems, SBS, to host a special membership vote. Now, members, and when I say members, These are those folks who are active members currently in the organization. So members, those active folks, should have already received an email. Now this email is the email that you have on file with Isham. So if you haven't seen this, maybe go ahead and check your junk folders or the spam folders. Really depends on how your email is set up. But you should have received this on Tuesday, June 22nd. And it's coming from Isham election coordinator. Now, if for some reason you haven't received your voting instructions and the link that's provided, then please contact support at directvote.net. Again, that's support at directvote.net. And they will be able to assist you with the voting process. As an ISHA member and a valued member of the sterile processing profession, we encourage you to vote and make your voice heard. Votes must be received by 11.59 p.m. Central Daylight Time on July 12th, 2021. For more information on the name change, you can check out the isham.org website, or you can go back and listen to episode number 41, which is a podcast panel discussion released on June 15th. Okay, now if you are a regular Process This podcaster, if you're one of my regular folks, then you already know from past episodes that I am a supporter of the name change. And you know, I have my reasons just like you. Now the great thing about this association is that you have the opportunity to have your voice heard by way of your vote. Now, there are folks out there that agree with me with the name change and they support it, but there are also folks that disagree with me and do not support the name change. But hey, guess what? Even though we may not agree on the name change, 
we can still be friends. You know, I'm going to support you. I'm going to support your vote either way. You know, so just please go out and vote. Well, Marjorie, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and get to talk to you. Can you tell us about your role in sterile processing and what do you like to do for fun? What do you like to do in your free time? Sure. So currently I am a director of sterile processing. Um, I work at a, a good sized facility in the Los Angeles area. In my free time these days, it's mostly schoolwork, to be honest with you. Currently, I'm pursuing my doctorate at St. Mary's College of California. But when I'm not doing schoolwork and I'm not working in sterile processing, I play video games, hiking, and hanging out with my son for the most part. That's my happy place. Nice. So everybody has a story, kind of how they got into sterile processing. How did you get into the field of sterile processing? I never planned on working in sterile processing. It kind of just happened that way. Um, back in the 90s, I worked at a in the coffee shop at a hospital, and I was going to school full-time at the University of Georgia. One of my high school friends worked in sterile processing in that hospital. I had never even heard of sterile processing, but she approached me and said, hey, we have a weekend position. You should do this. It'll be a great job while you're in college. And I applied and um, I got the job. You know, it, it wasn't instant, but I ended up falling in love with the field. It's one of those really unique industries where we really can make a difference. Um, we impact patient lives. We impact our coworkers. Um, we support nursing and surgeons. So it's really one of those really unique fields where what you do matters and really makes a difference. And so I love that. And I love being part of this industry that's continuing to grow and develop and, you know, keep being better. So I'm excited. I'm excited about the field and where we're headed to. So what made you decide to get into leadership? My story with leadership, it really started when I was a tech and it started with failure, to be honest with you. I remember early in my career, um, I was working on the weekends and I was working by myself. And if you remember those old synthes DHS instruments, um, the hip reamers, oh, yeah. I was cleaning those and I had never been trained on them. I'd never seen them before. Um, I cleaned both sets and I ran a guide pin or I didn't run a guide pin. There was a guide pin in that reamer. So I didn't take it out. I didn't clean it. I didn't flush that cannula. So when they got up into the OR and they used that tray, they went to push a new guide pin in and the old one came out. Hmm. Then they opened the next tray and the same thing happened again. That next Monday, um, I met with my boss after this happened and it was, it was an earth shattering moment for me. It was really hard to process because I had caused harm to that patient and I had, you know, put the whole surgical team in a bad situation because the patient was already under anesthesia and the back, field, back table had been contaminated twice. And there were no more trays. So they had to go back and process those trays. And then we called it flashing back then, but immediate use team sterilized those trays for use on the patient. So it caused extended anesthesia time. It was awful. My boss looked at me and said, you know, if you weren't brand new, 
I would fire you right now. The surgeons want you gone. What happened was so serious. And again, it really just shattered who I thought of myself. Like, how could I harm someone like this? And so that experience, and it took me a while to learn after that, but it really drove who I am today because I don't want anyone else to ever be in that position of causing harm. I don't want any of our patients to go through an experience where they have extended anesthesia or other surgical harm caused by sterile processing. So it really created this need for me at my core who I am to do everything that I can do to really make sure our patients receive safe patient care and our employees are set up for success. That need and drive, that's what drove me into leadership, into sterile processing leadership, and it's what defines who I am as a leader. So since then, that early experience in my career, I've built my leadership career on turning around underperforming departments. And, you know, I've worked with some amazing teams and developed some amazing leaders. And I think as an industry, we need to just keep learning and keep growing and developing and investing in ourselves to be who we can be and to have those safe patient outcomes. In sterile processing, you know, one of the things I liked best was just working with people. What do you like most about working in sterile processing? Sterile processing is such a unique field. I mean, what other industry has this high attention to detail, physical, you know, very like stressful, full-on workload field or job out there? What we do, we ask our employees to do this really high-level physical labor, but also this very tactile, micro, highly analytical, high-attention-to-detail labor at the same time. Um, Most people don't have both of those skill sets, but our people do. So I agree. I think the people is the best part of the industry. We have people that have grown up, myself, I started in dietary in the hospital system, but we have people that have started in dietary, EVS, or from outside facilities that come in, and this is an entry job point into the healthcare field. And so they're coming into these roles, they're learning this really deep, highly technical knowledge. Like we expect them to memorize 18,000 instruments in all of their IFUs. And then to be able to build these teams where the people really work together and support each other. And I, I know it's, it's words we use all the time, but really become a sterile processing family. I think who we are as an industry and the people that are in our SPD family, I think it's amazing. That's where the magic happens. When you see big process improvement initiatives that are successful, it's because you have a strong, positive culture that allows employees to have voice and to express themselves and to really be there to support each other. When you're having good surgical outcomes, it's because you have a team that's passionate about doing what they need to do to ensure good surgical outcomes. So I agree with you. Um, It's all about the people. That's what makes this field so amazing is the people. So along with being a leader in sterile processing, you also volunteer and serve with Isham. How long have you served on the Isham Executive Board? Prior to my current role, I did serve two years on the Executive Board, and it was such a incredible two years. My first year was very, very good. It was a great introduction to the board and how and what the board does in those processes. But my second year was really during COVID-19. And that opportunity to serve and be part of that during 
that year where our industry was so impacted by COVID, with the operating rooms being shut down nationwide, the N95 reprocessing initiatives, and then the OR surge ramp-ups that we're going through. To be a part of that leadership team that's really been there to support our industry, it's been an amazing experience, and I feel very lucky to have that opportunity. The Isham Board of Directors is really, it's a phenomenal group, and I'm excited about my new position on the board as president-elect. So speaking of president-elect, when did you decide that you wanted to run for that position? So that was, that's an interesting thing. The work that the board did during COVID-19 was amazing. Um, It was such a good group and we did town halls talking about N95 reprocessing. We did outreach to make sure our members were being supported. It was a very difficult time for everybody. During that time, we also had a kind of a little bit of an identity crisis of who we are as an industry, um, which I think has been brewing for about, you know, five, five years or so, probably since 2015 when the, um, the endoscope ERCP issue happened. One of the big initiatives that I know is public now is working on the name change of Isham. Mm-hmm. So it was important to me to be a part of that because I think it's something that's really critical for us as an industry to be able to build that professional identity and improve how other stakeholders like administration, surgeons, and infection control how all of those people perceive us as professionals. I think what happened with COVID-19 made that clear, that that's something we need to take on. And so I decided to run for president because I wanted to be part of the leadership team to help drive that and support it because I felt very strongly and I feel very strongly that our industry should be recognized as the professional organization and the professional field that it is. What excites you most about serving as the Isham president-elect? I am so excited to be part of the Isham and to be serving as the president-elect during these transformative years. So we're at a point where we're figuring out who we are, what our identity is as an industry. We're figuring out how we get people educated in the field, get their experience and get them hired and to actually be successful in these sterile processing positions. I think the next, well, the term, the next three years is going to be really transformative and I'm excited to have a voice in the direction that goes and I'm excited to hear the voices of our membership to make sure that the actions that we're taking as a board really reflect what our members want and need to get that support for them in their local facilities. I I couldn't be more excited or more humbled about this opportunity. Okay, switching gears now. You authored a, an article or a lesson plan in the September-October 2020 issue of The Process magazine, and that was titled Eliminating Missing Instruments. Now, this is a great article if you haven't gone out and read this yet, but you made a statement that most department leaders do not count missing instruments as a tray error if the instrument is marked on the menu or the tray. Can you talk a little bit about this statement and why you might want to count a missing instrument as an error? That's a great question. 
typically what people count as a trait error and what they're going to go back and track and do root cause analysis on. That's where there is, you know, a broken instrument, a missing instrument that's not documented or something like a wrong instrument or um, really don't want to ever see this, but bio burden on an instrument. So those are all human errors where there is clearly like a human or a system malfunction that led to the OR not having what they needed for that procedure, right? Yeah. So that's, that's pretty clear. That's pretty intuitive, right? What's less clear is when there is a tray and it's missing an instrument and then the tech marks it missing. Well, there was no error per se, right? Um, there was no system failure. There was no human failure. Like the process worked. The OR is getting a tray. The count sheet's accurate. The number of instruments in the tray match what's documented on the tray menu. Um, so it's all good, but it's it's not all good because the OR may need that instrument. You know, something happened in the system somewhere for that instrument to not be on that tray at the point of assembly or to not be located during the assembly process. So our goal should be that the OR has a complete tray every time they open it and they have all the instruments they need there. They're all functional. They're all correct. There's no bio burden and it's sterile, safe, ready to use. That should be our goal, but often it's not. We've, as an industry, have become accustomed and accepting that missing instruments happen and, and they will happen, but an organization should strive for it to be minimized or to not happen. So there should be metrics in place where you're monitoring and tracking your missing instruments. You should be root causing to find out what happened to your missing instruments. And that should be a data metric that should be counted and tracked and treated like an error. It may not be a human error, or it could be once you get into the root cause. But you really need to understand that metrics because it's still a system failure. And we need to work on our industry not having those system failures. So you also talked about getting the count sheet correct. Can you talk about some things that make up a good, reliable count sheet? When I've gone into hospitals, and I've done this a few times at a few different hospitals in my career, and we have a lot of tray errors. There's a lot of wrong instruments, a lot of missing instruments, and the OR is frustrated because they never can trust that their trays are going to have what they need. When I've gone into those, kind of the low-hanging fruit, and I say low-hanging, it's this is not easy, but it's one of the most impactful things that I've seen really work is updating the tray menus, making sure they have good manufacturer information, um, accurate catalog numbers, descriptions that are really useful. I'll give you an example. A tray menu may say medicine boss scissor, but it doesn't say if it's straight or curved. It doesn't say if it's five inches or seven inches. So there's a lot of variation that a tech can interpret for what should be on that tray. And then if an instrument is missing, and you need to order replacement, how do you even know which instrument to order if you have bad information? Or how do you know what to pull from your backup wall or even what to look for in other trades to try to find that missing instrument? So when you lean in and you go and you fix your menus so that they have that accurate information, missing instrument rates decline dramatically because techs can actually find what they need to put on that tray. The OR is much happier because they can trust that they're going to have the right instrument and not wrong instruments. I had a doctor back in the day that used to joke, oh, I got the good total knee tray. He's like, there's five total knee trays and only one of them has the right rongeur. Okay. 
So you're able to fix those types of systemic issues and all of it starts with data. And then I think as the industry keeps growing, we're going to start doing more work on um, IFUs and integrating those into the menus. Because how can you know what IFU to follow if you don't even have the right manufacturer catalog information on your tray menu? So I think there's going to be some integration work that's going to happen in the industry in the next few years on that subject. But the beginning of all of those conversations starts with accurate data on your tray menus. So in that article, in objective number three, you discuss using the tool Six Sigma principles, the 5S. Can you talk about Six Sigma and how it can be applied to instrument organization? Yes, I um, Six Sigma is my favorite. I don't think I mentioned it um, when we first started talking, but I actually have my Six Sigma black belt. I think it is one of those topics that people really, so people either treat it as, you know, the jargon of the day, the, you know, whatever, the, the little thing that people talk about, but they, they talk, use all the lingo, but they may not actually do it. And it can be really impactful for sterile processing departments. So 5S in particular, that stands for sort, sustain, set and order, standardize, shine. And it's basically like if you've ever watched any of those TV shows where they come in and they clean up the house and they organize everything. I think is it Marie Kondo where she goes, does this bring you joy? It's basically that process, but for whatever you're working on. So you can do a 5S project on your sterile storage. You can do a 5S project on your assembly workstation. And it's really organizing it, cleaning it, getting rid of everything you don't use and having everything that you do use readily available within arm's reach, like a really good system that way. So one of the things that I'm starting to see is people doing, and I recommend it, doing a 5S on your instrument trays. It's the same type of thing as if you're doing it on your workstation, but you're doing it on the instruments. So you're able to standardize your trays, you're able to you know, shine. So um, that means you're getting preventative maintenance done, all your instruments have no rusting, pitting, they're all maintained and in good shape. Set in order, maybe you bring in tray organizer, organize the layout of your instrument trays so that everything at a home, and damage, the potential for damage to reduce for some of those micro instruments. Sorting, so you eliminate the instruments that the doctors never use, and maybe you add instruments that they always pull in pill packs or open more trays for. So it's really optimizing and getting the right instruments on those trays. Sustaining, that's where you're educating and you're communicating, and then you are going through this cycle more often, right? So that's that you know really way that you make this whole process stick. So doing kind of a 5S project on an instrument tray, it sounds really, and I know it, I know how it sounds, but it really can make a huge difference. If you're lightening those instruments in the trays, it doesn't take as long to clean them and decontam, doesn't take as long to assemble and inspect them. The trays are lighter weight, so you're not getting the same lift injuries, right? So it's a really good process, and I really recommend that SPD leaders and SPD professionals in general Take some Six Sigma courses, learn about these process improvement techniques that can really make your department run better. So last question, do you have some tips that you can share with our listeners that may help folks eliminate missing instruments? So the biggest thing, and this is going to, it's going to sound crazy when I say it, but 
As seen in multiple facilities, when you get down to it, the root cause of missing instruments is often from the OR sorting, okay? OR departments, OR suites, they're in a lot of pressure to turn over the OR rooms as quickly as possible to reduce those turnaround times. When they break down the back table, the instruments may not go back into where they originally came from. And then when these same trays hit sterile processing, the trays that are critical, there's not enough of them, or this tray is needed for another case, there's this whole prioritization process that happens in decontam so that the critical trays go through the washers first. All the other trays from that same case cart may sit in decon for, you know, 30 minutes, and in some cases, hours before they go through the washer. So then when the assembly side starts and they're looking at these instruments, they can't find what they need because it's still sitting in decontam, right? So they assemble the tray, they look for the instruments, they spend all this wasted search time searching everywhere trying to find it. And then they finally set the setup with it marked missing. And then it goes to the OR, and the next morning the OR comes down and goes, I don't understand why you guys can't get this right. The instruments are right here. I don't know why you couldn't find them and get them assembled. And the truth is, the instruments weren't there when that tray was assembled. They were still in decon, right? So the biggest thing that I would say that's going to really make a difference in the sterile processing world with missing instruments is moving to what's called a one-piece flow, okay? So clean a case cart together. There's tagging systems. There's all kinds of ways that you can do to mark that all the trays from this case to mark them so that they're all marked the same so that you can keep them together. But wash all the trays from a case cart together. Send them through the washer together and then assemble them together. This is going to drastically reduce down search time because instead of searching through all the trays that are down in the department, you only have to search through the four or five trays that were used on this case. It's going to drastically reduce the number of missing instruments because those instruments aren't really going to be missing. They're in those other trays. So you can find them quicker and get them onto the right tray. And overall, its I know it sounds crazy, but it's going to really reduce your backlog and lead to um, more effective throughput of your department. I've seen it take departments from like 150 tray backlog down to 30 with just that one change. So every department's different. Everybody has different root causes, but this is one that I've seen over and over and over again. And it comes down to our tendencies to want to prioritize. Prioritization, we have to do. I'm not, I'm not saying we don't. There's situations where you have to do it. But for the bulk of your work, process your trays together in that one-piece flow system, and it's like watching magic happen. Well, Marjorie, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you for sharing with us uh, some tips and tools for eliminating missing instruments. Absolutely. It was great talking to you. I, I love your podcast. I'm a big fan, to be honest with you. And, you know, it, it's so humbling to get to speak to you. So I am hope this helped your listeners, and I'm excited to see, just like I said earlier, I'm excited to see what the next few years are going to be like in our industry. So thank you, Marjorie, for speaking with us today. For more information on how your department can reduce missing instruments, check out the article, 
eliminating missing instruments in the September-October 2020 issue of The Process Magazine. Isham Nation episode 42 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out that required information, and select the code July 12th. Again, the code for this episode is July 12th, and it just so happens to be the last day you can vote for that Isham name change. Hey folks, remember, keep an ear out for the next episode. It's always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, Isham Nation, and we'll see you next time.